Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 35 of the podcast in which we will look at chapter 13 of Prince Caspian, titled The High King in Command. And it's a fitting title for this chapter, especially given what we just looked at in the last chapter from Nicobrick, where uh, we discussed then Nicobrick seems to be navigating quite a dizzying array of different secular philosophies, all of them concentrated on this issue of power, this issue of authority, that we should not uh, bow the knee to the authority of Caspian, nor of Aslan, nor of Peter, if he even existed, but rather to that of brute force represented in the White Witch. Now, in chapter 13, we have the High King in command, and it's a, a wonderful title, thinking about how many different ways true authority is revealed in that phrasing. That in this chapter, we're going to have Peter really asserting himself in a much more confident way than he has in the previous chapters of this book, uh, where in earlier chapters, he, he struggles to believe Lucy. He struggles to make decisions on which way to go. Uh, there seems to be this um, this. Uh, need in Peter to reacclimate himself to the authority that he's been given to Aslan. He's been given by Aslan that it's been a year for him since he's wielded it, and he has to remember what it feels like to hold his sword. He has to remember what it feels like to exercise authority. And remember, too, that the kind of authority Peter has is given to him. Uh, it's not one that he has uh, grasped for himself, but it is a gift from Aslan. He'll mention that in a moment when he writes this letter to Miraz, uh, challenging him to combat. He'll mention that his kingship is a gift from Aslan. But it's the kind of kingship uh, that reminds us of Adam back in the garden, that that Peter is one who is meant to wield authority. He is given authority on behalf of Aslan to rule. Uh, he's a king of a kingdom. In the same way that Caspian is the rightful king of Narnia now, and it's Miraz's false authority, it's his false kingdom that is very much a theme of this novel. The, the distinction between true and right authority and false usurped authority uh, pictured uh, in Caspian and Miraz. Caspian's the true heir, the true king. Miraz is the false king, the usurping um the uncle of Caspian that's usurped the throne. So for chapter 13, the title, The High King in Command, uh, speaks on Peter's authority from all those different levels. He is the High King, and he's the High King in command. And so here we're going to see him assume that command with a very strategic decision where they are grouped at Aslan's How. They're waiting on Aslan and the girls to appear, um, strategizing on their next move. And Peter recognizes that if it's just a matter in this battle between one force against the other, the force of the Narnians is far outmatched by those of Miraz's army and the Telmarines. Uh, and so rather than in the previous book where Peter and Edmund lead their armies against the White Witch, force against force, here Peter's going to offer up the notion of single combat. Uh, think of David and Goliath, in other words, where... Um, one army sends one representative, the other army sends another, and whoever wins takes the lot. And so there's a great deal of wisdom, a great deal of strategy, of conversation going on with, um, with Peter and Caspian at the beginning of this uh, chapter. And in the opening paragraph, there's a really meaningful statement 
uh, made by Peter, where he opens the, the chapter out, being the high king in command. He says, Aslan and the girls are somewhere close. We don't know when he will act. In his time, no doubt, not ours. In the meantime, he would like us to do what we can on our own. Uh, so two really interesting sentences there. The first is his statement that Aslan will act in his time, no doubt, not ours. Now remember, too, the different structures of time in the novel um, where Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy have experienced uh, time on Earth, time in England of one year, time in Narnia is over a thousand years. Um, so already the first part of this novel was a matter of the humans in the novel coming to grips with time being something that is outside of their ability to control, outside of their ability to understand. They are mortals. Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy, for all of their grandeur in Narnia, are still finite. They're still mortal, which means all time, uh, the time of, of Narnia, the time of England, the time of yesterday, today, tomorrow, uh, the time of the past, the present, the future, all of it is Aslan's. And so all action is an action of providence. All action is an action of, of Aslan's sovereignty. So Peter's admission here that he believes Aslan will act, but he'll act when he deems it to be right because time is his, is a really great reminder to us of who the ultimate high king in command is. All authority uh, is Aslan's, and by extension and by allegory, all, all authority is Christ's. Uh, so we need to be like Peter here and recognize that any action that's taken that is good and right is going to be in Aslan's time. It's going to be in Christ's time, not ours. However, Peter adds this caveat here that's really important to recall as well. His following sentence is, In the meantime, while we wait and trust for Aslan to be on the move, in the meantime, he would like us to do what we can on our own. So there are two things to keep in mind there. One, that all of the sovereignty of Aslan uh, is true and right, that all authority is his, all of Narnia is his, all of time is his, in which to act. But that doesn't negate the responsibility of man, that we are still given tasks, we are still designed with purpose, we still have one choice to make after another. We have to put one foot forward and move throughout time and space, make choices, and those choices are ours to make to an extent, and therefore are our responsibility to govern wisely. We are called to sow seed. We are called to raise children. We are called to uh, cultivate the world, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the world, um, go ye into all nations. Uh, these are mandates that man has been given that we are responsible to obey. Um, so there's a way in which the sovereignty of Aslan and the responsibility of Peter to act uh, are not mutually exclusive. They are not separate categories entirely. It's not one or the other, um, but rather there is a way in which they harmonize that within Aslan's sovereignty is Peter's responsibility as king. Um, but the second thing to recognize when he says, in the meantime, he would like us to do what we can on our own, it would be a false reading of that, I would imagine, to suggest that Aslan wants Peter to act on his own strength or on his own reason or on his own timetable. That would negate the first thing Peter says, where everything is Aslan's time. Uh, so there is a way where we are to set out on our own and make choices 
and uh, exercise wisdom and exercise authority that God's given us. But of course, that doesn't mean we exercise that authority in whatever way pleases us or in whatever way occurs to us or in our own worldly wisdom. That would be to fall into the same follies as Nicobrick in the previous chapter. So those two sentences are worth taking together as a whole and I think represent, to a great extent, Peter's wisdom here. He recognizes Aslan as the ultimate high king in command, right? his time, not ours, but he also recognizes that he is the high king in command, and therefore he has to make a choice, and he has to send his people on that choice to go do certain things, um, because Aslan would like us to do what we can on our own. And so what he decides to do then is rather than send his army out to meet Miraz's head-on, he uh, offers the option of single combat, what's called monomachy. Uh, and it's, that's a term that Lewis will use, kind of a dated term here, uh, in, this, in this letter that um, Peter has Dr. Cornelius draft and Edmund deliver to Miraz. But monomachy is this idea that two armies send out single representatives to duel to the death in order to determine the victor. Uh, and we'll notice as this chapter unfolds that Peter's choice is quite quite wise. Uh, it will force, um, through uh, certain circumstances, Miraz uh, into this sort of ego trip of his own. Um, and it turns out to be a, a, a right and good choice. There are a couple of things about the letter that Peter writes um, that's quite fascinating. If you read the chapter, you'll recognize that he opts for this noble, uh, elevated language a very formal letter that he's uh, he's uh, dictating to Corn Dr. Cornelius to send to Miraz. Uh, he starts it, Peter, by the gift of Aslan, by election, by prescription, and by conquest, high king over all kings in Narnia, emperor of the Lone Islands, and lord of Ker Paravel, knight of the most noble order of the lion, to Miraz, son of Caspian VIII, sometime Lord Protector of Narnia, and now styling himself King of Narnia, greeting. Uh, so you have this very ornate salutation, this very um, courtly and, and royal address. Um, and you might wonder, at first at least, that Peter might be trying to sound uh, more, more pompous or more pretentious than necessary. But in fact, um, it, it seems like this is just an opportunity for Lewis to prove that there is a necessity for form, that nobility, honor, formalism, um, propriety, dignity, these things matter. Uh, these things are directly associated with virtue and wisdom, and they're not uh, outdated or archaic necessarily, that there is a, a proper place for um, formality, that this is rhetoric that suits the occasion. He's offering a formal address of a war strategy, um, and so he's writing as a king. And uh, this, remind, this reminds me of Proverbs um, in Proverbs 25, where uh, it says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Uh, there's something about a word fitly spoken, that these are fitting words. These are, this is a suitable style for the occasion. Uh, it reminds us in our day where it, it could be argued we've lost a great deal of um, a love for form and a love for uh, beauty, that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. It's a good thing to 
speak well. It's a good thing to think well. It's a good thing to argue well, present yourself well. Um, it just is one of those perennial desires of man. Every time you you watch one of these old period pieces where there are beautiful balls and um, where there's nobility and chivalry, and these things seem to strike deep into the heart of man. And so Peter's elegance here of writing this, um, it's not flowery. What he's writing is um, a, a duel. It's a prospect of a duel. He's flexing his strength here, but he's flexing it in such a way where he never uh, falls off of his horse and into the alley, uh, as it were. He's not, he's not speaking like a thug. He's not, he's not He's not throwing his fists up like an animal or like a beast. He's doing it like a king. Uh, and there's something good in that. It's, it reminds me of Hamlet, where Hamlet, um, when he's uh, advising the actors of the play on how to act, he, he famously says, suit the action to the word, the word to the action. That our words and our actions need to correlate. They need to harmonize. You suit the word to the action, and the action to the word. And if the action is one of uh, authority and one of kingliness, then your words ought to sound kingly and they ought to sound noble. And so he sends Edmund as his representative to uh, Miraz with this, this uh, proposal of monomachy, of single combat uh, to the death. And it's here that we... Um, we, we peer into the inner workings of two of Miraz's lords, Lord Glozel and Lord Suspespian. Um, and it's this part of the chapter that really um, uh, invites the reader in uh, to what I think is one of Lewis's main concerns, uh, which is the nature of evil itself. If you think of screw tape letters where uh, Lewis spends time detailing the economy of hell, here's how hell works. Here's how it functions. It's all self-serving. It's all envy. It's all um, uh, resentment and petty striving. Um, here we're going to see that with Glazelle and Sepespian. But also, it's a way of Lewis showing us the nature of true authority by flipping the coin to the other side. So in Peter, and in his maturity, and his development, and of course in the title character, Prince Caspian, we get this hierarchical uh, view of right and good authority, that God is at the top, Aslan's at the top, and Aslan uh, gifts true and right authority to particular people, and they exercise it with wisdom and virtue, and that's the way that God has decreed the cosmos to function. God has given man dominion over the world, and we are to exercise it in such a way that pleases God. Uh, so you have the image of true authority there. What we see with Glazelle and Sepespian is that false authority, usurping authority, uh, begets usurping authority. That remember, Miraz usurped the throne, and Glazelle and Sepespian are going to just imitate their king, quote unquote, king. Uh, that they are going to usurp the usurper. Um, Miraz betrayed his brother and took the throne. Now Glazelle and Sepespian are going to betray Miraz and grab at the throne. So it's all a vicious cycle of devouring that uh, in the absence of true authority, you don't have broad freedom. You don't have broad equality or broad democracy. You have self-authority. You have autonomy. 
um, down to its absolute form, where it's the dwarves are for the dwarves. It's every man for himself. And that brings us back to what Nickabrick was arguing, that um, at the end of the day, you just have might makes right. And whatever uh, individual is capable of exercising his own kingship with the strongest club is going to walk away the victor. And so um, if Miraz usurps his brother, Glozel and Sepespian usurp Miraz, it's only a matter of time before Glozel and Sepespian devour each other. Um, or someone comes up after them and betrays them, and it just continues down the line. Um, and we know this, too, because Glozel and Sepespian recognize when Edmund arrives the, the uh, splendor of true authority, that true authority radiates. It is self-evident. Uh, this reminds me of Romans 1, where, where people know the truth of God. They know who God is. They just suppress the truth, but there's no denying it. Uh, it's the same with Moses when he comes down the mountaintop, that everybody could see the glory of God radiate from Moses' being, that um, those who have walked with Aslan uh, radiate Aslan's glory, and so those who walk with Christ radiate radiate. Christ's glory. Uh, so notice what Sepespian and Glozel say um, when they see Edmund arrive. Uh, Lewis says this. He says, They looked up and saw coming down to them from the wood the centaur and giant Wimbleweather, whom they had seen before in battle, and between them a figure they could not recognize. Nor indeed would the other boys at Edmund's school have recognized him if they could have seen him at that moment, for Aslan had breathed on him at their meeting, and a kind of greatness hung about him. Remember Moses, right? There's a kind of greatness that hung about Edmund because of Aslan's breathing on him. That The way Lewis wrote that is important. For Aslan had breathed on him at their meeting, and a kind of greatness hung about him. Edmund's greatness is not one that he has uh, consumed for himself or he's grabbed after himself. That would be um, the exact opposite of Lewis's point. Lewis's point here is that Edmund has a kind of greatness because of the goodness of Aslan, not because he grasped after it himself. And Glozell says, what is this, an attack? And Sepespian says, no, it's a parley, rather. They carry green branches. They're coming to surrender. Um, and Glozell says, he that is walking between the centaur and the giant has no look of surrender in his face. That there's this trembling that's going on in Glozell and Spespian, where they recognize Edmund's power. They, they recognize the might of true authority, uh, no matter how much they might try to deny it, uh, that Edmund doesn't look like somebody who's going to surrender anytime soon. And by extension, I would argue no Christian ought to look that way either that no Christian ought to walk with a look of surrender in his face. And then now again, that doesn't mean that we fight in the mud. It doesn't mean that we sling um, sticks and stones at one another, but it does mean that we fight with the confidence of true authority because the authority we wield is that given to us by Christ. Uh, and so Edmund has no look of surrender in his face. And uh, Glozell says, who can he be? Is it not the boy? It's not the boy Caspian. And Sepespian says, no, it's not Caspian. This is a fell warrior, I warrant you, wherever the rebels have got him from. He is, in your lordship's private ear, a kinglier man than ever Miraz was. And that's our key here. Edmund is a kinglier man than ever Miraz was. And that's where we get the note that Glozell and Sepespian are um, 
considering, um, certainly motioning toward betraying Miraz. There's treason in the air here between Glazelle and Sepespian. And we know that too because there's a great deal of parenthesis um, in your lordship's private ear. He lowers his voice a couple lines down, Glazelle does. And then finally, Sepespian says, step a little aside here out of earshot of those sentries. And you see they start to craft their own uh, attempt to um, betray Miraz and grab after power for themselves. And it's that attempt that's quite interesting as well. We've seen this already with Nickerbrick uh, and his concern for power, the White Witch in the previous novel and her uh, grasping for power, Miraz's grasping for power. Um, the way in which Glazelle and Sepespian arrange this plan uh, is quite revealing. Listen to how they consider it. Glazelle says this, If the king undertook wager of battle, if he accepts this offer of monomachy from, from Peter, if they go to single-hand combat, it's a one-on-one -on -one combat. Um, if the king undertook wager of battle, why, either he would kill or be killed. Sepespian agrees. And if he killed, we should have won the war. Sebastian says, certainly. And if not, and Glazelle responds, why, if not, we should be as able to win it without the king's grace as with him. For I need not tell your lordship that Miraz is no very great captain. They all, they all know he's a feckless leader. He's no very great captain. And after that, we should be both victorious and kingless victorious and kingless so notice that they say if if miraz fights peter and wins then all's well if miraz fights peter and loses then miraz is dead the rest of our forces could easily take peter and caspian's forces army to army and at that point we would be victorious and kingless and it's that phrase that's so revealing and worthy of emphasis here because that is the central sinful desire at the heart of mankind the desire to be victorious and kingless the desire to be on top and to be subject to no one but yourself victorious and kingless because it's a good thing to be victorious underneath a good king that's what we're rooting for that's what the narnians are after they want to defeat miraz and defeat Miraz under the authority of Caspian, Caspian, under the authority of Peter, ultimately under the authority of Aslan. That's a good and right desire. And it's not a, nor, it's not a good and right desire either to be kingless and defeated, right? And that's not our aim either. We should not live in such a way as to be um, uh, constantly in a state of misery, constantly, constantly in a st state of poverty, shame, degradation that's not right either but the sinful desires to meet somewhere in the middle where we don't want a king we don't want true authority we want to be kings unto ourselves but we also don't want to be defeated we want to be powerful victorious we want to be on top and so that's the that's the phrase after that we should be both victorious and kingless that's the hope that glazelle and sepespian keep that ultimately serves as the engine for their treachery but there's a second thing at work here as well and it comes with the way this conversation wraps up. Glazelle says, after that, we should be both victorious and kingless. Sepespian responds, and it is your meaning, my lord, that you and I could hold this land quite as conveniently without a king as with one. We could be kings, basically. Glazelle's face grew ugly 
Notice that. That the more they consider autonomy, the more they consider being kings unto themselves, the uglier they become. Glazelle's face grew ugly. Not forgetting, said he, that it was we who first put him on the throne. And in all the years that he has enjoyed it, what fruits have come our way? What gratitude has he shown us? And finally, Sepespian says, say no more. And their plan is hatched. It's ready to, ready to execute. But notice the, the distinction between those two things that Glazelle says. The first thing, after Miraz is out of the picture, we should be both victorious and kingless. And then the second thing he says, and after all, in all the years that he's enjoyed being the king, what fruits have come our way? What gratitude has he shown us? Do you hear in those two things that Glazelle says? It seems like that Glazelle here is speaking like both brothers in the parable of the prodigal son. If you remember in in Luke 15, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, the younger brother sounds a lot like the first thing Glazelle says: "I want to be victorious and kingless." Give me all the inheritance that's coming to me, Dad. You get out of the picture and let me live my life with all the spoils. Let me take my inheritance and go uh, waste it all in the far country and live as though you're dead. Live as though you, my father, are out of the picture and I have all of your goods and I have all your money to go spend as I like. That's the first thing, victorious and kingless. All the, all the wealth of the kingdom, but no king except me. So that's the younger brother. But the second thing Glazelle says sounds a lot like the older brother. Besides, when did I ever benefit? When did we ever get any fruit or gratitude? So you see the, the prodigal desire there to be a king unto yourself, to be uh, fully and totally autonomous, victorious and kingless. But then also there's this brooding bitterness and resentment as well that Glazelle taps into as a way of almost justifying their treason. Besides, when did Miraz ever uh, thank us or show us any gratitude or give us anything, right? Now, remember the older brother, when did I ever have a party? When did I ever get to celebrate with my friends? And it's just this me, me, me resentment and bitterness coupled with the me, me, me of selfishness and greed that makes Glazelle here in both of these statements, really represent the younger and the older brother, represents uh, two sides of the same ugliness, which is the sinfulness of man, uh, to desire whatever you want on your own time, in your own way, with no king, and to resent or to um, have this bitter uh, um, envy uh, when when things don't go your way. And so Sepespian says, say no more. They hatch the plan, and the remainder of the chapter is the old archetype of the king becoming the fool. They approach Miraz and through reverse psychology, um, play on his pride and play on his ego in order to goad him into accepting this. Um, and we see that plan that's hatched, executed here pretty easily, too. You can You can recognize how fragile... Miraz's ego is, is that it only takes a few paragraphs for it to be broken down um, into this uh, uh, acceptance of the, of the proposal that Peter sends. Um, they, they play on his fear of cowardice, they play on his age, all sorts of things. And then finally, once they're successful, 
we get this great sentence from Lewis where he says, the two lords looked at one another and chuckled quietly. And so Miraz's throne was already unstable anyway, and we see how unstable it was by recognizing how easily it it was for his own lords to usurp it from him, that the nature of authority that we grab at, because it is not true authority, it is not uh, solid, it is not strong, it, it's weak and flimsy. It, remember this, the foundation of sand versus the foundation of rock that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, that he who builds his house on the, on the sand has a house that will crumble quickly when the storms come. And so finally, at the end of the chapter, we prepare for the combat. We prepare for Peter to face Miraz, and we know that uh, there's some subtext here. We're going to want to watch the duel between Peter and Miraz, but we're also going to want to watch how there is this subterranean uh, activity going on, that of Glozell and Sepespian, where there's more going on to Miraz's side, and that going on with Peter's side as well. Um, Peter lists his marshals, those who will monitor the duel to make sure there's no deception or um, trickery or anything. And uh, we see Reepicheep here um, basically offended, having his honor offended that he was not chosen. So we have Reepicheep having his own struggles of, of thinking over much of his own dignity and honor here. We have the bear that serves as the marshal that has this bad habit of sucking on his paws um, we have the giant who's rather dim-witted and slow. So um, we have Miraz's side with um, with power hunger and with envy and with um, scheming. And then we have Peter's side with its own uh, frailties, um, essentially declaring to us that we need Aslan to move. Um, but the good thing is that we have Peter operating with authority, operating with the desire to obey and the desire to do that which he's been given to do. Um, Aslan would like us to do some things on our own, but to do it in a way that honors Aslan's ultimate authority as the king of all of Narnia. So thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, make sure you tune in next time as we look at chapter 14, the penultimate chapter to the novel, How All Were Very Busy.